you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little show, please help us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Oh boy, we are back. It is time to get back to the curse of Oak Island. Season 11 has begun, and we're going to talk about that today. But we got a few things to get to first, including just reminding you here about the Patreon page. Um, just once again, if you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, that's it. And you'd like to see the podcast keep going and remain as ad-free as possible, please consider becoming a patron of the show. You can go to patreon.com slash Island and sign up. Uh, and also, you get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. Patreon has actually added a, no, a new chatting um, software, a new chatting kind of widget to their site. So we're going to give that a run, or we gave that a run this week for sure, uh, and uh, see, you know, work out the kinks and see what everybody thinks. But uh, it is always so much fun. I love that chat. That alone is worth five bucks a month in my mind. But uh, anyway, come and join us. Remember, patreon.com slash Island. Five bucks a month. Cancel any time. I get asked a lot about one-time donations. If you cannot do the five bucks a month thing, certainly that's absolutely acceptable. The only way I can really do that, though, is through Venmo. You can Venmo me at Dave McBride Music. That is my uh, musician job. Venmo, you know, during the pandemic, people like to tip virtually or without uh, giving money away and those kind of things. So we just sort of keep that stuff going. That's the only way I got. So maybe I'll set up a uh, Oak Island one one day. But anyway, as always, we like to start today's podcast off with emails and messages from you, the listener. Now, usually during the season, we have a whole bunch of emails to get to from each episode, but we don't have that today because I'm recording this part of the episode, a part of the podcast, at least before the actual season debut airs. Okay, so I'm trying. Those of you who uh, have been following me on the Patreon and asking questions and stuff, you know, I have a new job now. I'm not just a musician. I have another job. So I'm trying to find a way to keep doing this podcast and getting it out. This is the most important thing as quickly as I can. So, uh, you know, we've always kind of done this. We've always done, you know, not included emails about the current episode until the following week. We're going to continue to do that. Uh, but it is going to be a bit of a challenge. I'm up for the challenge, though. It is the reason why we haven't been able to do any uh, real uh a whole lot of off-season podcasts. We'll get into that later. But anyway, we have a bunch of things to kept, catch up with, a bunch of stuff from the summer. So again, these are not about the season debut. So get your emails in for next week's podcast if you want to discuss that or you have any ideas, even for this season, like any kind of preview ideas, anything like that, anything you want to say going into season 11 or after the new the the debut episode, get them all in. We'll do them next week before we uh, go over episode two. But today we're going to start with Kevin, who says, I was looking for something to listen to on the way home from work, given that my baseball podcasts have all basically ended, and I listened to your Laird Niven show. Laird is always a good source of information and has a healthy balance of candor and inside information, an excellent recap of the Stone Road and the difference in the East and West sides that Steve almost hinted at on the show itself. One thing I don't hear brought up by Laird, but related to the wall on the boundary of lots between 26 and 27, is that the stone road on lot 15 in the southeast triangle of the corner of the swamp is parallel to the 1762 lot lines. It is not on a boundary line, but it is clearly parallel and not intruding into lot 16 to the east or 14 to the west. Given that the road, in quote, is not the shortest path to the shore, current or past, it does point to being a feature that was built by an owner of lot 15 that didn't own lot 16 to the east. I'm looking forward to listening to your timeline shows. Kevin, Kevin, thank you for writing in. I, again, I was really hoping to do a lot more than just one podcast on the timeline of Oak Island, continuing that, the Oak Island hunt. Uh, I've done some research for the next one already. Um, 
but the off season got away from me so quickly between summers and jobs and vacations and all that kind of stuff. And the kid and my, you know, yada, yada, yada. I know uh, you don't want to hear me belly aching, but, uh, it kind of got away from me. Hopefully I'll do a lot more of that. Um, you know, those, those kind of shows next off season, but really once this, sh- the, the curse of Oak Island gets started, that kind of needs to be the focus of my attention here. Um, I just couldn't get ready in time, you know, for those other shows. Uh, They're great fun to write and record, uh, but they're very, very time consuming. Anyway, more next summer for sure. Now, on to the rest of your email. Uh, I think your analysis on that Stone Road feature on Lot 15 is sound. The hope is we can get most of these features uncovered this year and not extend that work any longer, right? As soon as we can get a good look at the real length and totality of these stone paths, we could start to formulate some theories, some real theories about them and perhaps get some answers or come up with some on our own, right? The fact is we are not there yet with this. We have not seen this yet. We don't know the extent of it. And um, maybe we get there this year. I'm hoping so. I know that there's a lot of work being done in the swamp, so it's going to be a big focus. Thank you again, Kevin. Come back to me later on in the season um, uh, so we can continue this discussion. Again, looks to be a real focus for the team's uh, time, energy, and money. All right. <clears throat> we have a couple of emails from our friend Jock to catch up with, so let's do that now. We start off with an email about that Facebook page, Oak Island from the Other Side of the Causeway, which we've discussed, and maybe even in the last podcast. Jock says, hi, Dave. Looking forward to your updates as you go into another season. I periodically look at this blog. I'm sure you know about it. At least we get updates on the thi- uh, on when things are moving across the causeway. Semi-surprised. They're still working there. Looks like her blog shows a kayak video from yesterday. Would they have put all those rocks up on the shoreline to prevent spying from the water? I wonder if that area is, is a no drop drone space like at airports. As usual with all these people coming and going, a leak of something significant would be impossible to contain, especially in the bars. So my take on season 11 is nothing was found. Cheers, Jocks. Uh, Jock, that's a good that's a good source for sure. We've talked about it again quite a bit. Um, I'm a bit hesitant to try and gleam too much out of just some photos you know, to say they found nothing. Uh, I'm trying to remain positive about season 11, but you know, as opposed to a lot of people out there, I don't define something significant, to use your word, as just treasure. Uh, they very well could have found something significant, so who knows, right? I mean, they have found something significant in the past years. We can't can't deny that. may not be treasure, but there has been some stuff unearthed that, earth that we're still scratching our heads about. Uh, anyway, check out that Facebook page, um, Oak Island from the Other Side of the Causeway. Uh, really kind of a cool spot uh, to to go and, and get some information, especially in the off season in the summertime, because that's when the work is going on. So you're seeing trucks you recognize and things like that. Anyway, on to the next one from Jockey writes, hi, Dave, always enjoy your podcasts. Have been keeping up to date with your summertime reports. I have a couple of things to bring up. I took a screenshot of this Facebook site of the hurricane tropical storm Lee that hit Nova Scotia. I'm sure weather like this has been commonplace in the area for eons. Let me just stop there. Uh, yeah, I almost forgot about that, Jock. Um, I wonder how big a role that storm will play in this season and the work done. The wildfires too, right? I mean, I think the beginning of those wildfires was certainly up in uh, Nova Scotia. I'm not sure. I remember talking to Laird and he was not affected too much by it, but uh, you never know. Anyway, we'll see. Jock continues. I keep thinking that the lead cross looks pristine. How could that be after two, three, four hundred years on a beach? I picked up some beach glass last week and it sure shows its age. I guess the explanation could be that it was buried deep in the sand and suddenly popped out onto the shore, onto the seashore soon before Gary found it. Lead is very soft, so I wonder how it looks unscathed. Look at all those coins, he puts in quotes, they have found. Numerous ones are so worn they are hard to read the original inscription. Have they hit any ex- expert unbiased opinions from the British Museum? For example, sorry, not trying to start a conspiracy. (laughs) You are, though. (laughs) Also, as I perhaps mentioned to you before, my wife and I ended up in Sintra, Portugal this summer. We ended up going to the Quinta de Regalera, I think I'm saying that right, where the spiral staircase was. I did not see one symbol of the Knights Templar. Boy, the Oak Island guys must must be more observant than me. And by the way, wasn't the Knights Templar supposed to be a secret society? If so, why is there symbology all over Nova Scotia as referenced by the gang? Third comment, the fellowship seems to be really good at dating wood, roads, and wells. They pull a twig out of a well and under the road and come up with a crazy date. 
Why would they not lift up each of the rocks in Nolan's cross and date the organic material or twigs under each? If it was man-made, the date should be very similar. Or do you think they have and have not told us about it? Nolan's cross seems to be a cornerstone of numerous theories, so it's important to date it. All the best. Cheers, Jock. Jock, um, I have said this before. Uh, I am forever stunned by the lack of attention the team has paid to Nolan's cross over these 11 years. You are 100% correct. The cross is an absolute cornerstone for especially modern theorists. And it seems more than a little strange to me that they have paid so little attention to it over the many years of the show, right? And especially considering the partnership with the Nolan family. That would have been the first thing I spent the better part of an entire summer working on was proving that this Nolan's cross is what we think it could be. And with regards to Sintra, my recollection is that wasn't that a Masonic site? I think I'm right about that, right? Here's another thing I've said a million times on this show, but on this podcast, but it always bears repeating. Templars and Masons are not the same thing. It's funny how the show likes to blur that fact, but that is the fact. They are not the same thing, and there is hundreds of years separating the two organizations. And finally, Jock sent a photo to me, uh, which I'll post on our Facebook page along with this email. He writes, hi, Dave. I was digging in the yard and I came up with this. No metal detector. Note the fleur-de-lis. I don't think the Templars came to Manitoba. If so, they have come via Hudson's Bay. My cottage on this property is only about 100 years old, but the English and French have been in Manitoba since 1668 and 1730, respectively. If I was a producer of The Curse of Oak Island, I would try to spin the older dates. This is what bugs me about the show, is that they would do just that. Spin the older date and note that the fleur-de-lis is significant of an unknown origin. Cheers, Jock. By the way, you guys in Eastern North America would have numerous things like this in your yard. Again, thank you for all that, Jock. I'm sorry it took me so long to get to him. All great stuff. Uh, and I'm sure we do have numerous things. I've seen quite a few of them. I used to own a house uh, kind of in Western New Jersey that was adjacent to what we later found out was a centuries-old landfill underground. Uh, the land had since like been filled in, plowed over, and and, you know, lawn you would never know it um except every once in a while my airedale would dig a big hole in the backyard and come out with some you know turn of the century piece of glass or some kind of piece of metal uh yeah humans have made a garbage dump out of much of the planet over the last couple of hundred years Anyway, it's always great to hear from you, Jack. Let's keep those emails coming. This season uh, is going to be a good one, and I uh, hope we'd hear from you. Hope all is well as well. Let's go now to Rob, who writes, Dave, you might be interested in this, a slightly better balanced take on Royston's cave. And he sent me in an email, uh, in the email, I'm sorry, YouTube video. He says, the thing is that, the thing that really jars me is their lack of objectivity, like when they thought TE was the Treasury of England. Never have I heard this. A 10-minute Google search and a quick phone call to a UK historian would have dis disabused them of this idea. It's a crazy show. Rob Rob sent me, again, he sent me this link. I'll put it up on the Facebook page for you guys to look at. It's a deep dive into Royston Cave. I'm not going to get too much into it. I'll let you guys take a look and judge for yourself. And the reason why I'm not going to get too much into it is because I've kind of already expressed my concerns here, or my reservations, I should say, about Royston uh, and I've done it a few times. Um, there's a lot of ifs to Royston Cave and a lot of unknowns. Um, and I certainly think that its potential connection to the Templars in Oak Island is, well, I mean, its connection to the Templars is un is in dispute. Its connection to Oak Island is tenuous at best or imaginary almost. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for that stuff, Grob. Uh, that is really Really cool little uh, video here that I think you guys are going to enjoy. Let's go now to the Patreon page and hear from our friend Mark, who writes, Rewatching season two, first episode marks the first appearance of Gary Drayton. But more interestingly, the lads are in Florida to complain about the fancy metal detector they used to scan the swamp in season one. They were getting big hits, but then Tony Sampson would go look and find nothing. The manufacturer goes on to explain how non-ferrous metals can start leaching into the water and create a false positive of something looking large and extensive, while in reality, it's something much smaller. Sounds like the boys have a bad memory for past things. You should watch the segment. It's about nine minutes in. 
Also at 17 minutes, he writes, they say, quote, during the Elizabethan era, Oak Island was thought to be rich with deposits of gold ore. But after a British mining expedition returned with 1,100 tons of iron pyrite sulfide, the island's extensive maze of underground mine shafts was quickly shut down. Uh, Mark, um, it's a great poll. I, I think we did once go over it in our off-season, season one. Maybe it's time to do season two. Go back and do a rewatch of that. Uh, I really suggest everybody go back and look at this episode. You can do it on the History Channel website. Um, the owner of this company, and this is the company that builds these high-end metal detectors that take multiple people to operate, right? They tell the guys that when non-ferrous metals are underwater for a long time, they begin to, and this is the quote, deteriorate and form a type of metal cloud underwater, resulting in the false readings that suggest the presence of something even larger. Now, Mark, when you think about it, that could explain a lot from over the past few years, right? But however, I think we do have to keep in mind that, and they say this on the episode too, for such a cloud to form, there needs to be non-ferrous metals down there in the first place. So it might not help you pinpoint its location, but it is certainly telling you that they are there somewhere, right? Does that make sense? And the other scene that Mark mentions, and he quoted a bit, and I'm going to do, I'm going to requote it here. Um, it comes in the, when the same company then comes to Oak Island to try and scan again, but this time they're going to do it while the swamp is frozen over, so they can get a better and certainly less uh, disturbed reading of the area. So during this scene, the narrator says, and just to repeat a little bit here, quote. There are those who believe what lies beneath the Oak Island surface may not just be one treasure, but several. During the Elizabethan era, Oak Island was thought to be rich with deposits of gold, but after the British mining expedition returned with 1,100 tons of iron pyrite sulfite, or fool's gold, the island's extensive maze of underground mine shafts was quickly shut down. Or was it? That wasn't my impression of uh, of uh, Robert Clotworthy, but I just wanted to get into it there. Mark, as fascinating as this seems to be, the narrator leaves out some really important details in what he's saying here. All of this is just a theory, and it's based on the English explorer Martin Fro uh, Frobisher, who did indeed come to Canada in the late 1500s looking for the Northwest Passage. And along with his... Uh, attempt to do this, he was also under orders from the queen to find gold and bring it home, probably to pay for his expensive voyage. He mined some down there and he brought home what he thought was gold, but it turned out to be tons and tons of fool's gold. All of that is indeed true, but there's no reason to believe he did any of that on Oak Island. Again, uh, Frobisher was looking for the Northwest Passage and was exploring and mining up in what is now called Frobisher Bay, which is way to the north of Nova Scotia, hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. Again, it's just a theory that requires a big leap of faith here, putting Frobisher in the wrong place. Um, but it's presented here on the show. And what I really have to say is a poorly written manner because it makes it sound like Someone somewhere, you know, documented extensive mine shafts looking for gold. That is not the case. Great stuff, Mark. Let's hear now from our friend and my fellow Jersey boy, Peter, who writes, As we start to see Oak Island ads, I can't help but think another season with no treasure. I mean, if they found a huge amount of treasure, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't they then hype it to the hilt? Wouldn't that draw the most viewers? Also, I get the sense you skipped the new Marty Blake top 10 shows. I recommend the second one on treasure theories. Really showed how many possibilities they have found uh, hints for in Scotland, England, France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, and how odd it is that they hearken to different centuries. Great for anyone new to the show. Would love to hear your thoughts on it. Peter from New Jersey. Peter, I don't skip them. I mean, I, I do a podcast about Oak Island, but I honestly, you know, Honestly, I don't really like them very much. I'm not a fan of the format, the sort of the retelling, you know, the regurgitating of stuff. Uh, I think for somebody who's not as bought into the whole thing as I am, it's probably more interesting and more fascinating. But for me, it's just a lot of reruns, scenes I can probably, you know, quote before they even start to show them to us. And, and they're very they're often presented in very non-critical ways. Right. When that kind of bugs me, too. But yes, you're correct. 
regarding that one about the theories. It is a good primer for new people to the show and all the different ideas presented over the decades plus series of the, uh, you know, of the series. But I would much more recommend someone new to the mystery to read a book, preferably Darcy O'Connor's The Secret Treasure of Oak Island. That's a way better entry point into the Oak Island mystery. It does everything you need. Uh, and there are more than one books. Randall Sullivan's book is this just like this as well. It gives you the history of the dig. It gives touches on a bunch of theories. It kind of takes a look at some of these theories in a really critical way in some instances. It's just a better entry level into it. Uh, so anyone new, that's how I would say it, not to watch one of these shows. Now, finally, I'm going to finish up our uh, email thing, our email section here uh, from Sarah. And I am going to do my very best to try to get through this email um, cleanly here, but it's going to be tough. Here it goes. Hi, Dave. I'm not entirely sure how to begin this email to you, but I am writing to honor my uncle who recently passed away less than two weeks ago after a six-month valiant battle after having a stroke. My uncle, Mike from Massachusetts, wrote into your podcast with research on the gold in the water findings that were being discussed on season 10 of Oak Island. You featured his research on the April 10th podcast around the 11th to 13th minute. My uncle proudly shared the podcast with my dad, who shared it with our family, all along, all long-standing Oak Island fans. My uncle was a secret acorn for years, and the last so many seasons we were able to connect on these theories and would discuss previous and upcoming episodes. Your podcast and how my uncle Mickey became Oak Island famous, that is what I'm calling it, was the last conversation I had with him. I shared with him that... Uh, well, I shared with him that who knows, next season they could be inviting him to the boardroom. He did have incredible research. Anyway, my uncle didn't get to see the, fi the finale of season 10, but we did communicate with him that they would be back for season 11 and that it would be a big one. The nurses would put the reruns on for him, and I know he was listening and theorizing as he was fighting. I'm writing today as the upcoming Tuesday's season 11's premiere will be the first without my uncle physically with us. I wanted to write you to honor him and dedicate this upcoming season and all those moving forward to him. My Uncle Mickey was a kind, quiet soul and will be missed deeply by all of us. His life is full of accomplishments from his education to serving his country in Vietnam as a Bronze Star recipient and then as a civilian at the Office of Naval Research until he retired in 2021. There he earned the Navy Superior Civilian Service Award, the highest honorary award for the Chief of Naval Operations. It's no wonder he loved Oak Island and enjoyed your podcast as research has been part of who he is for a lifetime. In addition to the research and mystery, the Brotherhood of Oak Island is something that I know he always connected with. As the oldest of five brothers, he knows the journey of the search and the experience and who you're doing it with is just as important as the search itself, the Brotherhood. His life of accomplishments is highly impressive. His research always impeccable. But I, what I will remember most is his deep love for our family, his children and grandchildren, and the thoughtfulness he put into every word he spoke or wrote. On our family's vacations to Martha's Vineyard every year, you could guarantee that Uncle Mickey would be floating in the water, sometimes for what felt like hours. He was at such peace floating in the water, letting the waves move around him while his family surrounded him. I pray he's at peace now, enjoying the salt water waves and surrounded by a family he hasn't seen in a while. He will be deeply missed and fiercely honored in his own words in reference to Oak Island. Onward to the blob. Keep up the great work. Thank you for your opportunity to share this with you and honor my uncle, Sarah. Sarah, my uh, sincerest condolences to you and your family. What a beautiful email you wrote there and what a perfect um, tribute to him. Your uncle was a member of the Diggin Oak Island family for sure. Uh, I will miss him. And I will miss his incredible intellect. He wrote some just amazing stuff, uh, stuff that I that honestly uh, my brain couldn't comprehend where he was going because it was just so researched and so well done. Thank you so much for letting us know about his passing, for giving us the chance to honor him here and to honor his legacy. Uh, my father and his father before him, actually, uh, we they is called Uncle Mickey by his nieces and nephews as well. If you loved your Uncle Mickey like we love ours, then his memory will never fade. But Mike, sail on, my friend. And thank you for all your work. Thank you for being part of this show. I cannot tell you what your participation in this show meant to me uh, and to my family. And I know that uh, 
you'll be researching Oak Island <laughs> up there. And, and one day we'll all be able to talk about it again. Okay, folks, don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, send them along to digginoakisland at gmail.com. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with season 11, episode one of The Curse of Oak Island. It is time now to discuss season 11, episode one of The Curse of Oak Island called On the Money. But before we even do that, let's take a couple of minutes here to talk about uh, the Maddie Blake pregame show that we got just about an hour. Or, well, exactly an hour before the episode. It was called Drilling Down Back to the Hunt. Now, again, let me say this, and I, and I don't mean this in any I'm not trying to be mean or or uh, negative or cynical or anything like that. But again, just like the top 10 shows, I really have grown over the years not to like these shows very much. Um, and I think that's more just a product of who I am, right? A blogger and a podcaster uh, who spends all their time talking about Oak Island, right? Uh, you know, I watch these episodes multiple times. So getting an hour worth of mostly stuff that I've already seen usually more than once, it just doesn't really appeal to me very much. And all that sort of border, borderline phony sounding dialogue, you know what I mean, the, hey, we can't talk about this stuff, right? Yeah, wink, wink, uh, you know, the silly smiles they give each other. And then these soap opera presentations of the last season cliffhangers. These are all the things we get in these shows and every one of these season preview shows. They just get old to me. I, I get why they do these. Um, I like Maddie Blake just fine. I love all the Oak Island content we can get, but these just aren't my thing, right? So keep that in mind. That's the reason why I'm not going through a lot of it. It just isn't my thing. You know, I get that you guys like him, uh, and I understand, especially people new to the show and people who didn't watch every single episode three times last year like some of us did. This is a good recap. Now, let me also say this. Um, because something is talked about, alluded to, or even promised on one of these shows. This is another thing I don't like about them. Um, on these preview shows. Doesn't mean we're really going to get much of it. Or any of it at all. During the season itself. For example, I believe last year. We were promised Muon results again. Uh, and we're going to have that again now. To no avail. I don't know why it is they do this on these preview shows. Maybe it's just the product of when they're shot. Um, because they are obviously shot last year, you could tell that in the work they're being that's being done, and what at least some of it is right. Um, but again, just because it shows up here really isn't any indication of anything that we're going to about to see. So as a preview of what's going to come, it really doesn't work for me. It just it's just sort of a review. It's just a really uh, a review of last year, and then kind of an hour long trailer for when you get right down to it. For what we might see, because that's what the trailers have always been. You know, there's always I mean, there's been some notorious scenes and trailers for the Curse of Oak Island that showed out to be nothing and scenes that looked fascinating that we dissected on trailers only to never see it in the show at all. You know, for even now, years later. So there's a few things, you know, uh, that just again, how do I put it? It just isn't for me, but. There is a couple of things we're touching on here from this show. Uh, so let's kind of stop the belly aching and get to them and just talk about them rather than going over the entire show. Now, speaking of the Muon data, we are promised that here again. And at some point, we actually get a visual, um, a visualization of some image produced by, or as we are told, is produced by this data. So maybe it is coming this year. Let's see. Marty talks how, about how they're continuing to work on Lot 5, which he says, quote, what's going on on Lot 5 may be the logistical center of what happened here, end quote. Uh, meaning, as he explained, many people have wondered over the years of the search how all of this work could have been done on the island to build this vast underground vault or whatever you think it is or whatever the theory thinks it is, only to not have any indication that anyone actually lived here to do all that stuff. You know, the theory being that perhaps they actually always lived on the ship, right? And never really left the ship and therefore, uh, and then cleaned up there for themselves really well afterwards. You know, that, that those theories are um, 
pretty popular and things that people have been talking about for a long time. But maybe what we're seeing here in Lot 5 might be turning that idea around a bit. Now, again, I have to stop here and mention something that made me laugh. And it made me laugh a few times later in this evening as well. While at Lot 5, Maddie talks about how he found evidence here, how the team has found evidence here supporting a Templar theory. And then, weirdly, the narration goes into this diatribe about the Roman cut coin found last year. Folks, I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but I will anyway. The Roman Empire was long gone before the Templars formed or were even thought of. As Merrily said on the Patreon discussion, quote, Roman history, 753 BCE to 476 CE, Templar history, 1119 to 1312. That's 600 years. You got to really come up with some mental gymnastics to try to figure out a way that a Roman coin is evidence supporting a Templar theory. It just isn't in my mind. I don't even know what that meant. You know, anyway. Also, we see in the swamp, which has been drained somewhat, but uh, not dammed up yet, we see the top of a huge boulder they're interested in, uh, one that they equate from its, you know, just visually from the top of it here, to Nolan's Cross and the boulders that make up Nolan's Cross. And speaking of Nolan's Cross, and after my criticism of the subject in this email section, it seems the team is going to be doing some serious work regarding that feature. Now, folks, fingers crossed, like, as I said... Just because they say it here doesn't mean we're ever going to get to see this, but this is something we all really want to see. And to me, as far as this Digging Down show goes, this was the big reveal. Anyway, that's all for the pregame show. I'm going to take a short break. Come back with Season 11, Episode 1, as promised. Episode one starts off like almost every other episode one we've seen, at least for the last few years. Rick, Marty, Craig Tester, and a couple of the other guys driving across the causeway in a black SUV to head to the war room for a meeting with the rest of the team to give us what really amounts to another 15 minutes of review of what happened last year. Again, <laughs> I'm belly aching a lot here. Uh <laughs> We just watched an hour of that. I'm not sure why we needed that again, but okay, we get it. Let's get beyond that. Uh, let's quickly hit on the money pit, right? The guys from Dumas Mining Company have not begun work yet on the garden shaft, so instead the team will continue the exploratory borehole drilling project that they've been working on for much of the last couple of years. To start, we see work beginning on a new borehole. This one labeled B5N13. There's some dots in there, but they're now not using those dots in the uh, explanations. Uh, and it's just west of the garden shaft. Terry Matheson is back uh, to look at the sample. And as Steve noted, he's back with his evil Spock beard. <laughs> That's what Steve had to had to say on the, uh, on the Patreon discussion. <laughs> His evil Spock beard. I kind of like that. Anyway, uh, drilling comes, uh, the uh, drilling core comes up, finding what they're calling soft earth. And this results in a lot of what I would call really sort of hopeful speculation about how this soft earth and not like a solid, uh, you know, natural undisturbed earth could actually indicate the presence of the money pit. And they do this by by um, well, let's back up. Remember, for those of you who are new, the money pit, and we talk about things happening at the money pit. It's now really just the area where we think the money pit was, right? I mean, we know the money pit was in this area, but we don't know exactly anymore where the money pit was. As Charles Barkhouse points out, it was lost over 150 years ago, uh, the records not kept, and all that kind of stuff. But the other thing to bear in mind that the original money pit before it was lost was collapsed and completely destroyed in the mid 1800s. Uh, there's a nice explanation of this on the collapse here on this episode. They do a good job with that. Uh, the thought here in this disturbed earth is that uh, this is somehow showing us um, the location of the collapsed areas, right? Because the disturbed earth is an indication of a collapse and maybe a fill in by the water around it and those type of things. Uh, you know, you understand where I'm going here. So 
maybe therefore they can say they're getting closer and closer to the correct spot of the money pit because they're getting closer and closer to the spot of the collapse. Now, everybody sort of agrees that there was a lot of side tunnels dug to the money pit. So the money pit was dug down. And then when they couldn't get there because of the flooding, all of the next few searchers who came in tried to tunnel down next to it and then tunnel laterally. They dug down next to the money pit and tunneled laterally towards the money pit only to be again flummoxed by the flooding and people almost dying in the process so there's a lot of tunnels that led to the money pit and all of those would probably be destroyed and filled up uh through the 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 collapse as well so you get where we're going here the next sample comes up from this hole and again this time it has nothing and the team sort of puts an end to B5N13. It's another hole that ends in disappointment. And over the last couple of years, this has become, you know, one of the big criticisms that people have of the show. Not me in particular. I have all the patience in the world for this stuff, but a lot of people are kind of getting tired of, uh, and you hear that a lot on, on social media and stuff about how people are getting tired of seeing holes being dug for no, with no result. Uh, but I, I can watch that all day. I, I love the history of it, and, and I think they're doing what they should be doing to try to find some answers at least. Later on, we get another new hole, this one called E5N95. And this is in what is, quote, unquote, the baby blob, which essentially comes up empty again. Uh, they dig down, nothing there, but undisturbed earth this time. And Terry explains, quote, it doesn't look good. We are at target depth and we don't see anything. So again, we have our second hole of this episode. And there wasn't a lot of time spent in the money pit, but a second hole of this episode, another borehole that comes up empty. But however, it wasn't all blanks for this episode. The last borehole we see, which is called DN12, I think they said. Again, in this baby blob area, but a little to the south. Hits a big chunk of wood at around, I think they said about 97 feet or so. And everyone is happy. And everyone is concluding that this could be the tunnel that they're hoping to reach. But I kind of have to pour a little cold water on this, right? Uh, In that, I think the logic that we're following here might be a little off. I find it hard to see how we can get the results of the collapse of the money pit And then a few feet south, find an intact hole that, I guess, leads to the money pit. If you understand the collapse and the tons of wood and everything, dirt and all of that that went into this thing, spread out sideways, just totally destroying everything done in the money pit, I find it hard to believe that we'll be able to find an intact, (laughs) uh, you know, tunnel just a few feet south of where the money pit collapse is being found. I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure that those two things are mutually exclusive of each other, uh, but at least I think it's worth asking and worth questioning the validity of this sort of logic the guys are employing here. Now, before we take another break here in the show, let me just take a quick trip to another project we saw, and this one I really like. This is called a, this is a diving expedition. So you got Rick, Marty, Alex, Craig, and maybe another cast member or two that are all meeting at the research center to discuss possible dive targets for diver Tony Sampson. Tony Sampson's a diver we've been seeing since way back when, maybe even season one or season two. He actually runs a tour boat company called Salty Dog Tours that tours around the island, takes people around the island. If you can't get on the island itself, it's a great way to see the island. Uh, Tony's a great guy and uh, you know does a great job here with the show and with the diving. Love to see him back, and it's really kind of cool. So anyway, they decide um, to talk about some possible dive targets for Tony, and they also indicate that they have the time to do this because I think this is what they were trying to say. They're waiting for permits to come through before they can dig in the swamp. So I guess they want to get this kind of work done in before they have to turn their attention over to the swamp. Kind of makes you wonder if they... If they just they don't have the manpower to do all this. I, I hope that's not true. But anyway, they decide they're going to um, they would like to see Tony dive and explore on the north shore of the island just off the swamp. 
If you remember last year, this is where they saw evidence of something that looked like a wall, wood wall or something. What they're looking for is any evidence of a possible damming project that might have been used to create the swamp however many hundreds of years ago. This is Fred Nolan's old theory and a popular one that gets a lot of attention online for sure about the swamp actually being man-made, that this was once two separate islands and then they drove the, uh, you know, sailed the boat in between the two islands and then scuttled the boat and then created this swamp in order to hide and, and bury the ship. Now, you guys all know how I feel about this theory. Um, we've mentioned it, those of you who listen a lot. But for the purposes of this being a new season, let me just give you sort of the nickel version of how I feel. Of all the ways to hide a ship, I, I mean... <laughs> This could be the absolute worst worst method I could think of to do such a thing, right? You got to remember a couple of things. It's so much easier just to set it out to sea and burn it. Uh, the possibi possibility of finding one that you set out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and then scuttle is almost none, right? If you take it to a deep water area, and they knew what their deep water areas were, and, and sink it, nobody would know it. But if you're buried in between two islands, well, then somebody might dig that up one day, right? I mean, it seems a lot more possible. This just doesn't make any sense. This whole theory never made any sense to me. And add into that, that ocean levels were much, much lower back then when this particular theories, you know, the theories about when this could have been done uh, would take place. So the swamp was probably not even a swamp, certainly not uh, anywhere near what it looks like now. It kind of only looks like it does now because of the road built in front of the swamp on the southern shore that was built in the 20th century. And that changed the swamp forever, making it look like what it looks like now, making it look like what Fred Nolan thought it looked like. But it didn't look like that before. It certainly didn't look like that a hundred years ago. But be that as it may, um, you know, and, and let me just add, the shoreline, for, for, for instance, would be way out to sea. Um, we're going to discuss this more during the season, and I'm going to tell you why this all is a good thing in just a second, um, even though I, I like, meaning the dive project in this area is a good thing, even though I don't think it's going to result in anything that looks like a dam because I don't see, or any proof that the, that the uh, swamp is man-made. That just doesn't make any sense to me. But anyway, Tony arrives on the island uh, along with, and goes for a dive along with an ROV, short for a remote-operated vehicle. And this is a little robot thing being used to take videos and photos of what Tony sees. Because as we know, the provincial government of Nova Scotia does not allow them to remove anything from the ocean floor without some permits. So Tony is really only here on sort of an image and fact-finding mission. He can't actually recover anything, can't pick anything up. Now, Tony finds some pottery, cool stuff, right near this big boulder. This, again, is all very close to the shore. The overhead shot that you see, the aerial shot you see, kind of tells you how close they really are. Uh, and hopefully this, you know, and then uh, let me not forget, he also finds um, with a metal detector a round disc with a hole in it. Somebody, maybe Tony even, says that he thought it looked a bit like a coin. It doesn't look like that to me from this visual, right? I don't, does it to you guys? Um, but what do I know? I mean, again, we're just seeing it from a TV video here. So let's see if we get any more on this piece in the future. And hopefully they get the permits. And and here's why I say that. Much, well, all of where Tony is right now was, in fact, as far as I can tell, dry land during the time periods where we think people like the Knights Templar or somebody like that might have been on Oak Island burying a treasure. So we really need to get a look at this spot. Like this is important as important to me as digging anywhere on the island because that area just offshore is, you know, <laughs> getting a look down there is exactly the kind of thing we should all be rooting for. All right, the bulk of the actual work that was done in this show was done over on lot five. So let's get into it. Now, let me go back to that. Well, we, what we see as we start off here is Jack Begley heading over to work with the archaeologists on lot five. But let's back up a bit to that war room meeting at the beginning of the episode, which I said was mostly just review. 
but there was one really cool thing. <laughs> First, Laird introduces us to some new archaeologists he's going to be working with, including one named Jamie Kuba, who seems to be sort of a new member of the team and will likely be working on Lot 5 for much of this season. But like I said, in the last segment, this war room scene, the first segment of the episode was mostly just a review. However, Laird blows us all away, certainly blew me away, when he showed photos of the circular feature that they found on Lot 5 and worked on a bit towards the end of last year. Remember, this is the thing that we thought might be like sort of an old basement. Um, I think Dr. Spooner said it looked like something from a Scottish castle or even like the parapet for a cannon or a gun of some kind. You know what I mean, right? The photos Laird has come to the war room with are from the estate of Robert Young. This is the man who owned Lot 5 for many years before his death when his family sold the property then to the Laginas. These photos are incredible and confounding to me. They seem to show, perhaps, that Young maybe found this hole, thought it was weird, and then for some reason started piling stones all around it. Now, this is a guy who's finding artifacts and taking pictures of them. Why would he, if he thought this hole contained artifacts or history of some kind, and he found some artifacts... Why would he then cover the whole surrounding area with this dense layer of stones, like sort of like a sort of circular patio and that no one could explain last year, right? This was the thing that sort of flummoxed everyone. Now, what we know now is that that circular patio thing that we didn't know it was created by Robert Young. Now, Laird admittedly is convinced that Young did not create all of this feature himself. And his archaeology and the stuff he's doing seems to bear that out, that in the original pit, there still is stuff there that indicates something way beyond Robert Young. Now, the thing is, no matter what they say, I can see no reason why Young would think what he was doing here was a good thing for preserving this spot or... I don't even know what you're trying to come up with here when they're talking about this, trying to, I don't even know why he would do something like this. Why would he, if he thought this was an archeological find or a spot that has lots of archeological stuff, why would he do this patio thing? I, I, I cannot fathom it at all. I got, I got nothing here, folks, other than the knowledge and a fact now in my head that young for certain manipulated this spot in some unknown way. Now, maybe as we start to see more photos and more information, we might be able, able to get an explanation, but I'm telling you, the whole feature now has a cloud of doubt over it for me, and it just sort of deflated me as I'm watching this. Like As I'm seeing these pictures, I'm thinking to myself, oh, no. After talking to Laird in the summer, he was very excited by this, so I'm going to stay excited and see how this plays out. But man, those pictures were just just a killer in my mind. I mean, what's going on here, folks? If you have any theory on what you think might be happening here, what what Robert Young might have been doing, please email them, digginoakisland at gmail.com. Now, despite this, as I said, Laird remains genuinely excited about this feature and what it could mean. Jamie and uh, their Jamie Kuba and their um assistant who was there, a woman named Fiona, pull out a piece of red earthen pottery from inside the pit. And there's a lot of talk about how this could then indicate an occupation of some kind. I think he said 1600s, someone living on the island from before we knew there were inhabitants. And Laird points that out. But also Marty points out that there just are no records, even from after, from the 1700s and on, of any homes or occupants ever on it. However, on this area of the island, Marty points out that on Lot 5, quote, there is no record of anyone ever living here. So finding this stuff and finding, uh, you know, evidence of inhabitants is really important, potentially really cool. So now a couple of minutes later, Gary Drayton comes in. Uh, guys, were all talking about his eyebrows. I don't know what that meant. Finds a corroded piece of iron in this little pit area. Uh, with his metal detector that they then take to Emma Culligan to the interpretive center for an analysis on a CT scanner. Laird says the closest match he could find visually was something called a river raft spike from the pre 1840s. But I honestly have no idea what that is. I couldn't find anything on it uh, on a quick Google search. So I'm not really sure, but 
What was really intriguing was when Emma says that it doesn't chemically match up with any of the other artifacts found on Lot 5, meaning that it doesn't seem to fit the same time period or the same uh, way it was made or the same, you know, a smelting methods or whatever those things, things they use, right? But it does match almost directly with another artifact. So Laird Niven jumps in here and explains that when he was that he was contacted this offseason by someone named Frank White, who has some artifacts found on the property of the birthplace of a man named William Phipps. And that those things match perfectly. Incredible. So who was Phipps? Now, I'm not going to get too much into it because we've talked about him before. Uh, and maybe if we get into this more, this Phipps narrative as the season goes on, I'll give you a real deep dive on William Phipps again. But um, so who was he? He was a governor of the um, Massachusetts colony for a long, long time, uh, played a role in the Salem witch trials, which he was probably pretty much famous, mostly famous for in history. But the thing that he was probably best known for while he was alive, the thing that made him famous, uh, and certainly the thing most important to the context of our story here, was when he recovered a massive treasure from a sunken Spanish galleon called the Concepcion, which, as mentioned in the show here, has been a theory as to the origin of the Oak Island treasure. Again, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, especially if we're not going to go back to this. But if we do, we'll get more into that theory. They do mention it here. It is on a past episode. Let's hang on to that for just a little bit, right? And see what it is. But the cool thing is that this artifact matches these William Phipps art artifacts. I mean, we I really want us to dig into this some more and see what this is. I mean, we're this is a potential of a direct tie to a theory, right? So, I mean, uh, we haven't seen anything like this since the lead cross, right? This this could possibly be a big big thing that they found here, especially if they find more, and then we can get a serious chemical analysis that gives us what this could be. Anyway, I don't get too excited. You never know with these things, right? So later on, Rick and Gary um, are detecting on lot five. There's this whole thing going on about how Rick's the lucky one. Gary always finds things when Rick's there and nobody else, uh, which I thought was really funny. And the narrator says that they are, um, you know, uh, waiting for, or they're doing all of this within the guidelines of the provincial government, right? According to provincial guidelines. So we're making a lot out this episode so far about how we're staying inside the boundaries of the laws because, I mean, for whatever reason, but they are making a point of that. And it's important to keep that in mind as we go forward. Gary finds a coin. Then he finds another coin. Then Marty and Craig come down and they continue searching. And then they find a third coin <laughs> and they take these coins to the interpretive center to Laird and Emma Culligan again. And Emma does a quick scan of, uh, the, of one of them. She says it's 95% copper, 5% silver. Emma says it's not Roman old, but it's still old. So again, we're, we're, we're focusing on the potential for this Roman stuff, which I don't really know why. And every time they mention it, they kind of shoehorn in the Templars. Again, I don't know what that's all about. The next coin seems to have a head or a face on it, some sort of marking. And Emma says it's a pretty good candidate for a Roman coin, which she ends up being right about, by the way. And again, we go into this Templar thing. I have no idea what this has to do with the Templars, but be that as it may, uh, the third coin has a, these strange sort of lines on it. It looks like, a, I think somebody calls it the waffle coin, right? And Emma says that this one matches closest to a... Um, a French coin that she has information on that was used during the 13th century. The thing here is these are all totally unique. There is no thread between them, right? We have a French coin, a Ro possible Roman coin, and then some other old coin that we don't know of, but we know it's not either of those two things. Gary seems to indicate that he thinks this is a good thing. I don't know how you can think that because what we want to do is narrow the search here, yet it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And here it is again. If we think these coins were from the people who deposited the treasure or were part of the treasure itself, how does that make any sense? I mean, this is confounding. I, I, I do not understand. Anyway, Gary's detecting again later on. 
it looks like the same scene. It looks like everybody's wearing the same stuff, but they tried to make it seem like it was the next day or something like that. Uh, but I don't really care much about that stuff. And they find yet a fourth coin, another coin. So they bring in a numismatist. This is basically a guy who's a coin collector. He's a guy who's an expert on coins. We've seen him many times before. His name is Sandy Campbell. He takes a look at the coins. Uh, again, we're doing this visually and we're doing this with a collector's eye. We're not we're not getting the information I'm about to give you from any sort of concrete scientific or chemical way, right? So could these be facsimiles of stuff? Sure they can, but we don't know that. We're hoping we get that information as as this goes on. So Sandy says the first coin he looks at has the design, this is the one that was like the waffle coin has a design of a castle porcullus, which is one of those um, sort of grates or, uh, you know, the front gate of, a, of an old castle. It's sort of that grill, right? That lattice-looking grill that was usually made out of iron or something like that. And what he, in- what he says is that indicates that it's a British coin of sort of Tudor-era uh, circulation. The second one, he says, is obviously Roman, and he says it's from 100 to 300 A.D., the third one he brings in, he says, is harder to identify. I think this is the one that um, Emma thinks might have been French. But he speculates that it could maybe even be from India and of the Middle Ages. I mean, my goodness. And then the fourth one, he says, very 100% surely is Roman. And he says from the BC era. So... The episode ends uh, with this sort of hanging over us. And again, the only thing I have to say on this until we get all of this absolutely confirmed, which I mean, that's pretty close here, right? I mean, Sandy knows what he's talking about. He spent his whole life doing this stuff. And Emma, I'm sure, can date it somehow. And I, and I hope they will do that more as the time goes on. But again, a British coin from the Tudor period, two Roman coins, and one from India. I mean, <laughs> I, I have no idea. I can't tell you what this could mean. I don't know why it would mean the Templars uh, or anyone else for that matter. Uh, none of these are gold coins. None of them seem to be particularly valuable in their day. I don't know that for sure, but that's kind of the, 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 the quick information I've got. But uh, I just, again, here we go. A new season. Now what do we got to do? Bring India into this whole thing to add to the pile of places that might have come, people that might have come here? Boy, it's just never ending. All right, folks. That's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. Thank you so much for sticking around with me over the summertime. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can really help us out by going to become a patron. If you think this show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash island to learn more. And if you prefer, you could also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you'd like to help the podcast out another way, and I was asked about this, you could do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or a positive rating anywhere you get your shows. I was asked how you do that on Spotify or on other places, um, iHeartRadio. I'm not sure you can. I don't use either of those things. Uh, So if anybody out there knows whether or not you can do ratings on that stuff, please send me an email, diggingoakisland at gmail.com, so I can pass that information along to our listener who is asking to be able to do that for us. Uh, I know certainly the most important one is the one on Apple Podcasts. So if you have an Apple uh, account and you get anything through them, you can go on the show, go to the show's page on Apple, and you could do a review and write a, a nice review as well. Five stars, please, please. No reason to give anything else. If you don't like it enough to give it five stars, why are you listening, right? <laughs> and thank you, to everyone, for taking the time to do that and for the kind words. You can follow the show on Facebook. You can also follow it on Twitter, but I don't really use Twitter anymore. We're at Digging Oak Island. I do suggest Facebook. It is the place where I put the images, and I don't really use Twitter anymore. Uh, if you have any questions or comments you want to send directly to me, you could do so via email, Island at gmail.com. You could do so 
via Facebook Messenger as well. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or direct message on social media, I might just answer it here in the podcast. So if there's any reason at all why you don't want your message read aloud or you don't think this is for the audience, just make a note of that for me and I'll do my best to answer you. I did a very poor job of answering these things over the summer because of how busy I was, but I promise you I will get to them quicker now. (laughs) It's been a long summer, but we are back, folks, and I cannot wait for this season to continue. And as we, as we used to say, as Dave uh, Blankenship used to say, it is crown time. So let's pop the cork. And until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island. <laughs>